And for our reflection this afternoon, I invite you to turn with me to Psalm 106, 106, and we'll be reading verses 23 to 31. Actually, verses 23 to 27, so we'll shorten it. And continuing on the theme of Israel's rebellion against God, their unfaithfulness toward God, we read in verse 23, speaking of God, Therefore he said he would destroy them, had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Then they despised the pleasant land, having no faith in his promise. They murmured in their tents, and did not obey the voice of the Lord. Therefore he raised his hand and swore to them that he would make them fall in the wilderness and would make their offspring fall among the nations, scattering them among the lands. One striking feature of the scriptures, the word of God, is it's straight up, it's straightforward frankness when it comes to recording the sins of God's people. It never glosses over the sins, even those of the most godly. In fact, we can think of David, the sordid details of his sin with Bathsheba. Scripture plainly sets forth the sins of even the saints in the clearest of terms. And for sure, it never soft-pedals the waywardness and rebellion of his people against him, as unpleasant as it might be. And as we've been seeing, this Psalm 106 is all about the perennial waywardness, their constant unfaithfulness, that is, the children of Israel. And this is set against the backdrop of God's enduring mercy against the backdrop of his forbearing patience toward the nation. And our study last Sunday evening closed with the people of Israel turning their backs on God. In the words of the psalmist, they exchanged the glory of God for a lifeless, worthless idol, a golden calf. And following that sad, unfortunate incident, God determined we see here in our text that he was going to wipe out the nation. He was going to wipe out the entire nation. And he had promised that he would make of Moses a brand new nation, a great nation. And we read here in our text, verse 23, Therefore he said he would destroy them, had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Warren Wearsby points out that that phrase, stood in the breach, describes a soldier standing at a break in the city walls and preventing the enemy from entering. And that's the imagery we have here. Israel has caused a breach. They have breached God's covenant. They have gone contrary to God. They have gone to the most um, aggravating heights of worshipping that which is not God. And God said that he would destroy them, but 
He says, had not Moses' his chosen one stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. As the account in Exodus 32 indicates, Moses' prayer of intercession was one in which he begged the Lord not to unleash his wrath upon the nation. He actually begged God. He pleaded with God. And his grounds for that pleading, for interceding for Israel before God, was this, lest the Egyptians should interpret this in a way that would put a blight on God's character. We read in verses 11 and 12 of Exodus 32, But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? And then he begs God, he says, turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. And then he goes on to appeal to the Lord to remember his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Israel as regards multiplying their descendants. We then read in verse 11 of Exodus chapter 32, And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. This is not the only time in scripture we find God changing his mind, changing his intentions in response to prayer. It makes for a very interesting study that God answers, God responds to the prayers of his people. God says, I'm going to judge and then Persons get before God, we see that time and again in scripture, and they plead with God, and God relents. We have, for example, the case of David, God's judgment against David. Remember when David, contrary to the will of God, numbered Israel, he took a census. Somebody would say, well, what was wrong with taking that census? And it was wrong for David to take that census because in numbering Israel, what he was actually doing was he was placing his confidence in the strength of Israel's army. And of course, when he did that, the focus would be taken away from God. God said judgment. God promised to judge a nation. And the word of God tells us in Second Samuel 24 verse 16, and when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arona, the Jebusite. This was in response to prayers that were offered to God concerning this judgment. Second Chronicles 32 verse 26, we find that in response to King Hezekiah's prayer, the Lord held back his wrath from Jerusalem. Jonah chapter 3 verse 10, you know the whole account of how Jonah was sent to Nineveh to warn that God would destroy the land of Nineveh. And the Bible tells us that when the people heard the preaching of Jonah, they repented. And then Jonah chapter 3 verse 10, commenting on that, says... When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. 
Similarly, God tells Hezekiah that he's going to die. Hezekiah turns to God in prayer, and God changes the situation. God changes his mind, as it were. He adds 15 years to Hezekiah's life. The question then becomes, how, how do we reconcile the idea of God's relenting or changing his mind about judging a nation in response to intercessory prayer? The fact of his unchanging character, how do we reconcile all of that? The fact that he does not go back on his word, bearing in mind, of course, such passages as Numbers 23, verse 9, God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will not fulfill it? Malachi 3, verse 6, For the Lord, I the Lord, do not change, Therefore, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. And when we study the word of God, we see that there is no contradiction to the fact that, yes, God does, is a God who does not change, and yet, in response to prayer, God changes his intention. God changes his intentions regarding judgment, and God saves an individual or a nation. The question is, how important is this matter of intercessory prayer? And I would say absolutely vitally important. Because the Word of God tells us, for example, that we are to pray for kings, for all who are in authority. We are told to pray, Scripture suggests we are to pray for the conversion of the lost. Now, the Word of God teaches that God has his elect, God knows who are the saved, and yet we are called to pray for the conversion of lost souls. The Bible is adamantly true and consistent in its claim that we must pray, even in the face of verses such as we have have mentioned. How important is intercessory prayer? Well, let's consider some of the statements in Scripture concerning this matter of intercessory prayer. James, for example, in James chapter 5, verse 16, he is addressing the church and he says this, Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. The apostle John says very much the same thing concerning the value, the power there is in intercessory prayer. If any man see his brother sin a sin, which is not unto death, he shall ask, and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. Now, we don't have time to go and explain all the ramifications of that verse. Suffice it to say that these verses, particularly 1 John 5, 16, James 5, verse 16, underscore the importance of praying for one another. You remember the case of Job, how Job was severely tested. Job met with adversities, afflictions, and if you read the end of Job, Job chapter 42, we see something of how Job's situation was reversed, how he was restored by God. The Word of God tells us that Job 
had the responsibility. God sent his friends to him, those who had made wrong claims concerning God as they looked at Job's life and they made wrong claims as well concerning Job, which were tantamount to judging Job. God said to them, you have not judged right, you have not judged right concerning Job, therefore go to him and he will pray for you. Now here's what the word of God says. Job chapter 42 verse 10. This is right after, this is right after he had prayed for his friends. The Bible says, and the Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. Not until he had prayed for his friends, not until he had interceded for them, that God reversed his misfortune. God, in fact, the Bible tells us in the next line, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. In fact, the word of God teaches that not to, not to pray, not to intercede for others is actually a sin. It's actually a sin. Samuel said to the people of his day when they were, they were afraid of tokens of God's judgment, God had sent lightning and thunder as form of his displeasure and the people cried out to Samuel They said, listen, don't stop praying to the Lord for us. And then here was Samuel's response. In 1 Samuel 12, 23, he says this, Moreover, as for me, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. 1 Samuel 12, verse 9, And all the people said unto Samuel, Pray for your servants unto the Lord thy God, that we die not, for we have added Unto all our sins this evil to ask us a king. And you see this throughout the New Testament. The Apostle Paul knew the importance of intercessory prayer. He would ask Christians, ask the various churches from time to time to pray for him. First Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 1. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course among us. And then he says the reason we need that prayer because not all men have faith. The writer of the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 18, he closes by saying, Pray for us, for we trust we have a good conscience in all things, willing to live honestly. And Psalm 106, our text makes it abundantly clear the necessity, the importance, the value there is in prayer. He said he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. And we could go on and on. We have the case of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 22 verses 29 through 31. Ezekiel is lamenting the condition of Israel. And as he looked at the moral and spiritual condition of Israel, he makes this observation and he also presents God as commenting on the situation. He says the people of the land have practiced extortion, they have committed robbery, they have oppressed the poor and needy, and have extorted from the sojourner without justice. And here's what God said. God said, and I sought for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand in the breach before me for the land that I should not destroy it, but I found none. 
Therefore, I've poured out my indignation upon them. I've consumed them with the fire of my wrath. I've returned their way upon their heads, declares the Lord God. Now, let's stop there for a moment and make this practical. God says clearly here that the reason he sent judgment upon the land, what with all the iniquity that was taking place upon the land, was because he was looking for a man who would stand in the breach, who would intercede, and he was able to. Not able to find even one. And the question becomes, how much are we given to praying for others? We see, for example, our nation on what is on what is a clear path to destruction. I'm not no, I'm not, there's no particular sentiment, no agenda, no motive. I love this country, and I suspect you know that very well. I love this country. This country has done a great deal. We are blessed by this country. But here's the point. We are not going in the right direction. Morally and even spiritually, we are off course. And let me say this, it's so easy for us to see all the flaws, it's so easy for us to see all the problems, to talk about the problems, but here's the point. How much are we praying for our leaders? It's easy to criticize them, right? It's easy. I find if I'm not very careful, I am doing nothing but what? Criticizing. And yet the challenge comes to us from the Word of God are we as Christians standing in the breach? Are we being faithful in praying for others, those in authority? Praying for the lost. All these are, are, are vital, are vital importance in God's economy. God has his decree. God has his set plan. God knows what he's going to do. But that does not obviate the need for us to do what God says in praying for others. The importance of intercessory prayer, of praying for the salvation of others, of praying for the nation. First Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. First Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And Paul writes this, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And that's where the challenge comes for you and me. Remember the case of Abram interceding for the city of Sodom. He stood, the Bible uses this language, he stood before God. And he approached God. He says, will you destroy this city if there are 50 righteous found? And down the line he came and he kept going before God. Will you destroy it if there are 10 and, and so on and so forth? The Bible says after he had finished speaking, with the Lord. And of course we know what happened. The judgment of God fell. And of course Abram's prayer was certainly effectual. Because God saved Lot. Amos chapter 7 verses 1 through 6. This is what the Lord showed me. Behold 
He was forming, Amos says, locust when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. And behold, it was the latter growth after the king's moins. When they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said, Oh, Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He's so small. The Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. This is what the Lord God has showed me. Behold, the Lord was calling for a judgment by fire, devoured the great deep, and was eating up the land. Then I said, O Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He's so small. The Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, says the Lord. Intercessor prayer, according to the word of God, averts the judgment of God. So the question becomes, where would we, or where are we with respect to this matter of interceding? Now the psalmist turns to yet another instance of Israel's rebellion against God, and this we see in verses 24 through 27. Israel not, was not only unfaithful to the Lord in going after other gods, but this time, notice, their sin consisted in doubting God's promise regarding possessing the promised land. The word of God says there in verses 24 through 27, Then they despised the pleasant land, having no faith in his promise. They murmured in their tents and did not obey the voice of the Lord. Therefore he raised his hand and swore to them that he would make them fall in the wilderness and would make their offspring fall among the nations, scattering them among the lands. This is you, this is you and I are right here. Constantly we see in this psalm the cycle of turning to God and then rebelling against God and God is about to pour judgment or God pours out judgment. They cry to him and they back. They're back at square one. God had just spared them through the prayers of Moses. And notice they went on at this point to another sin, another form of sin, namely the sin of doubt. The reference is to Numbers chapter 13, verse 14. You know the account Moses had sent out spies, 12 spies to the land of Canaan, to which Israel was headed. They brought back conflicting reports. The majority, consisting of ten spies, argued that Israel would not be able to overcome the inhabitants and take possession of the land of Canaan. Their report, recorded for us in Numbers 31, Numbers 13, 31 to 33, was as follows. The men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who came from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. You see the folly of fear and doubt they're actually reporting to Joshua how they seemed, and the question is, how would they know that? That's how they seemed to the people. And then they confirm, saying, and indeed, that's how we were before them. 
And this report, of course, led to a breakdown of morale among the congregation. So much so, we read in Numbers 14, 2 to 4, and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and against Aaron. The whole congregation said to him, said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt. What ingratitude. Or would that we had died in the wilderness. What treachery against God's goodness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. That's what the psalmist is citing, that incident. It was one in which Israel was disbelieving there were having before God this attitude of unbelief, of doubt, doubting God's promises. And how does Israel interpret, how does the psalmist interpret Israel's attitude towards God's promise with respect to the land of Canaan? First of all, notice, theirs was an attitude of disparagement, of utter disregard for God's promise, for God's good gift. The Bible says in verse 24, they despise the pleasant land. Now, if you ask them, was that true? Perhaps they would say to you, we never despised it. But here's the point. By their very attitude of doubt, by their very attitude of dismissing the clear promise of God, what they were actually doing, they were discounting and they were disparaging the promise. When they said, listen, yes, God says we can get this land. It is indeed a good land, but we can't go up because of this, that, and the other reason. What they were effectively doing was they were despising, they were disparaging the land the word means to treat with contempt or scorn, to look down on, to refuse, or to reject. And from the psalmist's perspective, it was not so much that Israel could not take the land as it was, that they did not want to do it. They did not want to do it. Why? Because of a lack of trust in God. They feared they were following what their eyes could see, and hence fear overcame them to the point where they simply refused to trust God to go up and take the land. And that unbelief, the psalmist is saying, was tantamount to disparaging or despising the pleasant land. Here is the solemn truth, beloved, that when you and I fail to take God at his word, we might not think so, but the truth is we are actually despising his word. When we are doubting it, when we are setting little store by it, when we are saying, yes, I know it is true, but my circumstances is this, you don't know what I'm going through, what we are basically doing, what we are basically saying, the word of God is not worth what it poses to be. It is a disparagement of the word of God. Second, the psalmist interprets Israel's attitude towards God's promised land as one of faithlessness. As one of faithlessness. Here's what the psalmist says. They had no faith in his promise. They had no faith because rather than resting on the promise-assuring word of God, they allowed themselves to be controlled by what they saw. They were walking, we would say, by sight and not by faith. Again, as the incident in Numbers 13, 32, 33 
Notice the emphasis throughout. We saw. What did we see? We saw the Nephilim, the giants, the son of Anak, who came from the Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. They were walking by what their sight dictated. And we have to watch that. We have to watch that because if, or, or the default position, you see, is to be all physical unless, as Thomas says, unless I see, I will not believe. And yet the word of God is saying that as far as the Christian life is concerned, as far as our life as Christians are concerned, it is a venture of faith in which we step out and take God at his word. There was nothing that breeds more, breeds fear and doubt as what our physical eyes can see. Somebody has defined fear as false evidence appearing real. False evidence appearing real. We, we recall, for example, how Peter, and I'm drawing to a close, Peter was doing fine. He stepped out on the water, and that was a bold venture. Jesus, he said to Jesus, if it be you, Lord, bid me come. And the Bible says he stepped out, and as soon as he lifted his eyes and he saw the winds boisterous, what happened? He became afraid, and he began to sink. The danger of walking by sight and not by faith. We find that in Matthew 14, 29 and 30. He was doing all fine, walking on the water, until he lifted his eyes and looked at the waves. The trials and difficulties we face, beloved, can either be occasions for building our faith or succumbing to fear and discouragement. Hence, 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18 says this, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen for the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. That's why we are told to look where? Not within ourselves. Not around us. Not over our shoulder, but to look to Jesus, the author, the finisher of our faith. And he says, looking to Jesus will, or rather, is an effective antidote against becoming weary and faint.